All right, everyone, uh, let's bow our heads together, commit our time and God's Word together. Heavenly Father, thank you again for your love for us. Thank you that your love is so great that you would choose to talk to us, to reveal your will for us and your power to save this contained in the pages of Scripture. May it be precious to us, will give us the wisdom to, to understand what you are teaching your church, that we would internalize it, meditate on it, and put it into practice. We may love you and love one another. Thank you, Father, for all that you've done for us. Commit this time to you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, guys, good to be back. As much as Katie and I enjoyed our time on the road, we do miss you guys dearly when we're away and try not to be away for, for too long, but uh, had a late... Had a pretty late Friday night, managed to uh, crawl through the doorway at about 4.30 yesterday morning, so um, need to catch up on some rest, but we can honestly say we are very happy to be back here with you uh, to, to worship and to be with our church. So I invite you this morning to open up your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 4. 1 Peter chapter 4. Begin a study in a new section of 1 Peter. Uh, last Lord's Day that we were here, passage is through verses 7 through 11. Please, read, or please follow along as I read 1 Peter 7 through 11. The end of all things is near. Therefore, be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another, because love covers a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without complaint. As each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Whoever speaks is to do so as one who is speaking the utterances of God. Whoever serves is to do so as one who is serving by the strength which God supplies, so that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So we are covering what is surely to be taken as a pretty urgent instruction uh, from the heart of Peter. He begins this passage with a statement that is sure to grab our attention. The end of all things is near. Now, when we hear this, the end is near, we typically are drawn to some kind of what we would call eschatological alarmism. The end is near, therefore, the end is going to happen. The end of the world is near. Everything that we have known, everything that we have come to treasure and think familiar is coming to an end. And as we got into this passage, uh, last time I was with you guys, we talked about how it in no way references this impending sudden end of the world, this end of the cosmos. Something else quite different is in view. When Peter says the end of all things is near... He is talking about the last phase of God's redemptive program. And we also emphasized how important it is to have a Godward, or we could say godly, perspective on this. We want to view this, this command, uh, or this, this, this attention-getting phrase of the end of all things is near, and understand the commands that go out after it. And we want to see it how God sees it. Because if we don't see God's perspective... We are going to end up applying this incorrectly. 
There is a concern that we, on one hand, may grow complacent, uncaring, unattentive, or on the other end of the spectrum, we'll engage in some kind of eschatological end times frenzy. But that's not the point. The point is to hear this and to come to attention as a church, as the people of God, and to prepare ourselves to proclaim the gospel, to prepare ourselves for action, to prepare ourselves for what we would see as a time of fruitful ministry, as a time of blessing, as a time of God's salvation and redemptive work coming to bear. And we are blessed as His church to be a part of this redemptive program, to faithfully proclaim the gospel, to point others to Christ, knowing surely that God will not fail to do His redemptive work, that God will not fail to bring His enemies under His feet, that God will not fail to subdue the nations, that God will not fail to gather in His elect to Himself without missing one. We are in the middle of that time frame. Indeed, the end of all things is near. That is, the fulfillment of all things is upon us. And we are in that last phase of Christ's redemptive work. And we proclaim His name. So that is the context. That is the setting. It in no, it in no way means go sell all you have and buy a bunker in Montana and wait for Jesus to come back. We are to be prepared. But we are to be prepared from a particular point of view. Remember, perspective in this matters. And our perspective is that through the instrumentation of the church, God is in Christ going to bring His redemptive power and His redemptive work to bear. And so, rather than being a time to run, rather than being a time to speak doom and gloom, it is to be a time of anticipation, of great joy, and of great preparation of what God is going to do through His Son and also through His church as a mouthpiece. And in understanding this, we don't want to miss the very important context. Who is Peter writing to? He's writing to a series of churches, several churches, scattered throughout Asia Minor, that is, modern-day Turkey. And there is an important warning and exhortation here for them to be ready. Just because they anticipate the Lord doing great things, these things are not going to come without their challenges. But church has never been able to be faithful through, through church history without facing down certain challenges, often challenges that are very intense, often challenges that from a human point of view would seem very daunting and very threatening. And yet here we are, nearly 2,000 years removed from this letter, and guess what? The church has thrived. The church has grown. The church has persevered. Now, there's, the, the, the churches in this time are facing a couple of, of things that I think will play into our understanding the urgency of this command. The first is this, and I think this has been obvious throughout the epistle, is mounting persecution. Persecution uh, upon the church is getting more and more intense and more and more frequent. They are now being marginalized, often ostracized by their own respective community. Remember the gospel, even though it is going out to the Gentiles, it is, it is being preached in the face of an intensely pagan culture. And among that pagan culture is to 
swear allegiance to Caesar, in some sense to acknowledge Caesar as Lord and even God. And as they are preaching, as the gospel is being preached faithfully, the saying is going forth that not only has Christ died and risen, but that Christ is currently reigning as Lord, as King of kings and Lord of lords. So guess what? Caesar is not Lord. Jesus is Lord. And so you can imagine the difficulties that would arise in the face of a proclamation of that nature. It is seen as betrayal. It is seen as, in the worst cases, treason. And as time will go on, the consequences of affirming Jesus' sole lordship and His ability to save, and that salvation is found in no one else, will get more and more intense as far as consequences go. Especially in a few years, you will see the rise of the Emperor Nero, who surely will bring in a more intense form of persecution that will include death. And that's just one of the challenges. Here's the other challenge that I think gets missed often, but I think it plays into this. You also will have the upheaval that will come with the sacking of Jerusalem in AD 70, and that's only a few years away. Now, why is that important? How could, that, how could an event like that, that happens in Jerusalem hundreds of miles away from the churches to whom Peter is writing, how could that serve to perhaps discourage or even lend itself to division and confusion? I would say this. A huge part of Christ's work on the cross in His death and resurrection and current rule is the bringing of the two most unlikely peoples together. That is, Jew and Gentile. I mean, it's, we, we fret over enough divisions today, but let me tell you, the most unlikely combination, the most unlikely division that would be instead united would come between Jews and Gentiles. That dividing wall had been crushed. What could never be joined together under any other circumstances, Christ has brought together. He has brought the Gentiles and grafted them into the tree, thereby forming, as Ephesians tells us, one new man in Christ, Jew and Gentile. And so, when you see the sacking of Jerusalem, one, you have a cataclysmic event to which, you, which, which would be caused to wonder, okay, are the Romans going to sack anything else? What else are they going to attack, right? But I think more importantly, when you have the Roman siege of Jerusalem, once again, you have that division that is expressed very clearly and very historically. You have Jew and Gentile faced off against each other, which will result in the death of over one million Jews at the hands of the Romans. That could cause a stir. That could very well be a catalyst for division. You have a lot of challenges that are going on here. Then you add that to persecution. Yes, persecution can cause an unsettled attitude within the church. It can cause fear. It can cause indecisiveness. It can even cause us to turn on one another. That is something that the enemy loves to see, especially in the midst of suffering, is Christians turning on one another. It doesn't matter. Man, woman, Jew, Gentile, slave, free. No matter what the case, the enemy wants to see division take place. And division can often occur in a most profound and efficient way when persecution is going on. Can severely our can severely compromise our expectations that the gospel is going to do any kind of transforming work. Can even affect our motivation to engage in that kind of work. We're sitting around wondering, well, what's going on? Is this really having any effect? And if it is, the preaching of the gospel is truly doing its work, then why are we being persecuted? Why are we being hunted down? Why are we being rejected? 
And that is perhaps, that is precisely why that is happening. Don't be discouraged by that. The enemy will ramp up his attack surely as he sees his kingdom crumble, as he sees the gates of hell assailed. Do not think it strange, Peter will say, concerning the fiery trial that is coming upon you. So from either calamity or persecution, it can be easy to be discouraged, to get complacent or lazy, even to get fed up and disengage, disengage with the church, disengage with society, to act like God is not doing anything fundamentally transforming through the work of the gospel past saving souls. Right? One of the things we have sought to teach here is that the gospel's work goes far beyond simply saving individual souls. It is a transforming work. We desire to see the gospel transform culture to turn typical human conventions upside down on their heads so that all those institutions come to honor Christ and to trust Him as Savior and to obey Him as Lord. And all of these things, all of these things affect our perspective of what the Gospel is going to do. And so with that, we come to these particular encouragements, these exhortations, even these commands that Peter gives. And I think they serve immensely in as they are put into practice, they prevent us from becoming callous toward one another. They prevent us from judging one another impatiently or unjustly or unmercifully. Look at what Peter says in verse 7. Pay attention to the text right here. Chapter 4, verse 7. After he says the end of all things is near, he says this, Therefore be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. So there's the first one, right? Second one is, Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins. And then he says, be hospitable to one another, verse 9, without complaint. You see, if we fail to pay attention, if we fail to have a Godward perspective on what the Gospel is doing and get discouraged and become unbelieving, we will fail to exercise hospitality. We will fail to exercise a love that overlooks offenses. We will not position ourselves as prayerful watchmen to pray for the church, to be sober-minded, to be vigilant. We want to guard ourselves against those things. We want to guard ourselves against a, a prayerless life, against a lack of care shown for the flock of God. We don't want our love to be hypocritical. We want it to be fervent. We want to be sober-minded. We want to teach all these things faithfully. So we divided this text up into a few uh, parts. We got through the first two. We'll get through the third one today. And I believe the third one is worthy of special attention. And some of this for you some of the instruction I'm going to give this morning, just to give you a, a preface here, may be hard to take. I'm not, it's, not my, it's not my desire to, to, to pick on one or to bully anyone from the pulpit. Some of you really excel in the exhortation that is given this morning, and some of you really need to step it up. Some of you need to be instructed and need to be sanctified in this area of your life. And plus, I don't want to hurry through the rest of the text, so we will give special attention this morning to verse 9. <clears throat> but in verse 7, we come to the first point of what the end of all things spurs us on to do. The end of all things, that is, this, this phase in redemptive history in which the gospel is being proclaimed through the church. So the first, of course, is godly attention, where he says, be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. That was the first one. Pretty self-explanatory. Secondly is this. The end of all things spurs us on to godly affection. Notice we say godly here because we want our love to be of a, of a divine kind, right? Of, of, of a divine quality. Not merely a human type of love absent from 
biblical revelation, absent from the truth, but a love that is stirred up by godliness and a love for Christ. So that's the second thing. He says, keep fervent in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins, right? Fervent in your love, a love that goes above and beyond the call of duty. Not a passive kind of love, but an active kind of love that seeks the highest good for another and one that looks that overlooks petty offenses. It's hard to stress this enough because we live in such an easily offended culture who, who just can't forgive, who can't overlook petty offenses. And sometimes, you know, especially if we're around that a lot, which often comes in our jobs and sometimes even at home, we too have trouble overlooking offenses. We have trouble forgiving quickly. And we stress this to say that if we are unable to put these things into practice, we are going to have an extremely hard time following through with what verses 10 and 11 have to say. See, verses 7 through 9 lay the most important groundwork. Establish those attitudes that we are to have in place so that we can serve one another, so that we can be effective teachers. But how are we going to do those things if we are prayerless? How are we going to do those things if we do not love with any kind of fervency? If we are constantly offended and put off by one another? Unforgiving? And here's the third one. The end of all things spurs us on to godly acceptance. Godly acceptance. Not this pathetic, general kind of, oh, I accept you. But I mean receiving someone. Receiving someone into your life, and most specifically here, receiving someone into your home. Sometimes that's a challenge for some of us. You know, our home, that's our sanctuary. That's our precious space. That's where you do your me time, right? Have a hard time. Some, some of us do. We have a hard time having people under our roof. We can make an, a variety of excuses, and we'll get to that later. But it is so important, so key that we exercise a godly acceptance, that is, hospitality. Now, know what Peter's doing here. He mentions here concerning the end of all things, and under this, love is commanded two times. In case you missed it the first time, love one another fervently, because love covers a multitude of sins. Then he goes on to say, be hospitable to one another without complaint. Where do we find love here? Well, we find it in the word hospitable. It comes from the Greek phylloxenos, which simply means a love of strangers. And I love how it is framed that way because even many Christians find themselves loving the familiar, <laughs> loving friends, loving family, accepting people into their homes, practicing hospitality. So there's the love that covers a multitude of sins, and then there is a love that practices hospitality, a love that is willing to open one's home and therefore one's heart and life to one another. They go hand in hand. See, if you're constantly harboring bitterness, if you're never able to overlook any offenses and bear with one another's faults and shortcomings, then how are you ever going to be able to open up your home to those people? But Peter says, love of strangers, practice hospitality. Think about the context of this. Churches in the first century were by and large spread out. You didn't have as many local churches in a given area. Often you, and most of the time, you had one. You had one church. So when a stranger from another church arrived, Hospitality would come to be an extremely important practice. Love for stranger. Think about it. a person that you probably don't know very well, a person that you aren't very familiar with. And I believe by, by implication, this extends to even members of the church that you perhaps know intimately. Think about 
who the Lord brings into your life. Think about love for strangers also in the context of love your neighbor. Who's my neighbor? Well, who'd you talk to today? Oh, so-and-so, that guy's your neighbor. Did you love him? But he commands a love here for strangers. So if you're traveling, you're on the road, hospitality was an extremely important practice especially in a pagan Roman-slash-Greek culture. To stay at another lodging was undesirable since your average Motel 6 back then often involved, involved carousing, drunkenness, and temple prostitution. Remember, pagan life, it was just part of what you did, no matter where you were. And so if you were a believer in traveling, what you would desire would be a like-minded person, that is, a brother in Christ, to be willing to share your home and table. Room and board, we call it today. It's hard to imagine the leaps and bounds and successes and blessings of Paul's missionary efforts, if not for the gracious hospitality that any given local church would give him as he traveled abroad. It's very important. Someone there to meet his needs. I mean, we know Paul. Paul wasn't rich. We know that sometimes he had plenty, but sometimes he was in want. And it would prevail upon churches to serve him in that way, to meet his needs, to give him respite, a place of rest, to feed and shelter him. And one of my most precious memories growing up is it's from my own parents. I, I, they, to this day, I, I always mark them as an exceptional example of hospitality. Growing up, uh, even going home in college, I, I remember my home being a place of rest and refuge, a place where people were welcome, a place where people were, were well-fed. Even if my parents didn't know those people, learned that also from my grandparents. It was such that even when attending college, most weekends, more often than not, I was home. Why? Because I wanted to be home. Why? Because my parents loved strangers, even their strange son who came up on the weekend occasionally. But it was that kind of environment which continued to draw me back. And I think uh, all believers have an opportunity to do this, to show that care, to show that kind of love and affection and godly acceptance, especially toward fellow believers. You know, so many times we have said how many of these Godly virtues, how many fruits of the Spirit begin and are really cultivated in the home. Hospitality, friends, is no exception. It begins in the home, just like education, just like discipleship, just like practicing all the one another's. They all start at home and flow outward in all the redemptive fervor into every area of life. But this is something so fundamental to church life and to the Christian life is being able to show a love to strangers, to practice hospitality. This has become a big thing. Think about what churches even today try to fashion themselves with. What kind of qualities do they present, right? Put your best foot forward. What kind of church are we? Or what kind of church do we at least desire to be or continue to grow in? Near the top of the list is hospitality. You go on any church website, we're a welcoming community, right? We are like family. You know what that communicates? It communicates hospitality communicates a love of strangers that even if you have never been to this church before, if you are a brother in Christ, we will treat you like we have known each other our entire lives and will rejoice with one another into all eternity. Is that, 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 is, that is so much of what the church ought to desire to be, to be welcoming. Again, not at the expense of you know, never discipling, never, never rebuking, never ex exhorting, but the general spirit of the church should be looking for opportunities to serve one another, and therefore to love one another. As Job's comments, it is this kind of open-heartedness toward one another that is the basis for a Christian hospitality, willing to minister to other believers even in the absence of warm feelings and even when relationships are strange. 
strained. This goes back to the environment, the environment of persecution, right? It may be difficult to house people. It may be difficult to want to fellowship. It may be difficult to want to share a table, especially when circumstances are strained or very difficult. Perhaps the person you have opportunity to serve is not your favorite person in the world. Perhaps they offended you. Perhaps they insulted you. But against this backdrop, it doesn't matter. We are to show them love. And I think the blessings that come through this are obvious. I mean, they're really too numerous to, to list all of them. When I think about even some of the more quaint worldly blessings, when you invite someone over, you have an opportunity to house them, give them a comfortable bed, you have an opportunity to feed them. Nothing says love and like a good warm meal. On a very, see, it's a very practical level. This is, the church, this is the church working itself out horizontally, right? We got the vertical, we got the worship. This is the horizontal plane in which the church operates. So many opportunities, so many simple ways to bless one another. Room, board. Often in, the, in that area of the world, even from, you think about even the time of Abraham, right? It was, it was an opportunity to even offer protection to someone, to protect life and limb. Think about, think about Lot and his situation in Sodom and Gomorrah. He told the two angels, hey, this is the wicked city. Come and be under my protection. Be under my roof. I will protect you. Showing hospitality to a stranger was something very important. When you brought them under your roof, you were offering them protection. That you would protect them with your life. It's an opportunity to serve them in a myriad of ways, perhaps even ways you never anticipate. Even a very plain thing we, we, we talk about. You know, we go over to someone's house. Why? To get to know them a little more. To get to know them better. To know what they're like, right? And it, and it opens up all kinds of opportunities to be able to minister to them. Most of the time in ways we never even anticipated. Right? How do you know someone if you never spend any time with them? I know we have ample opportunity here on the Lord's Day. We have fellowship meals afterwards. But even that is not meant to be, is not to meant to isolate itself. That kind of spirit is meant to flow out into the week where we look for opportunities to open up our homes to people and to see how we can serve them, to share our lives with each other. You never know what may come up. And some of the most unbelievable, surprising, unexpected opportunities to bless someone have come, up, have come up when we have simply had someone over for dinner or breakfast, or they happen to stop by just to say hi, and, they, and what was meant to be a 10-minute stay ended up being two to three hours. You never know. And I think it's, it's, it's even not knowing. The, the unknown should not discourage us. The unknown should encourage us to seek ways to strengthen the fellowship and to strengthen our relationships with people to see how we can be a blessing to them. And what greater opportunity than to have them in our own home. And here's another one. Showing hospitality is a way to rest in God's provision. Yes, if your gift is the gift of hospitality and you have a lot of people over, it does get expensive. It does cost money. Especially when you serve them the good stuff, right? You buy a nice steak or something, you serve really good food because you really want to bless them. It, it can. It, it, it comes at a personal expenditure. And that is an opportunity to rest in God's provision to say that if He has equipped me with this gift to serve others, He will also give me the materials necessary to continue blessing them. She's so practical. And that should be our mind. To do this by faith, to rest in God's provision, and to seek ways to be a blessing to others. To not turn our heart away from one another. To not be cold. To not be passive in approaching these opportunities of showing hospitality. This continued to be a a main theme throughout the New Testament, especially as it was churches that often were the meeting places for churches. Founded in homes. Homes were the meeting places for churches. Think of 
Romans 16.23, Paul talks about Gaius, host to me, and to the whole church greets you. In the same chapter, Paul mentions in verses 3-5, through greet Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers in Jesus Christ, who for my life risked their own necks, no doubt by having him in their home, to whom not only do I give thanks, but also to all the churches of the Gentiles, also greet the church that is in their house. We find that in 1 Corinthians 16, this is still occurring in their home. Boy, it's one thing to have people over, like one family, but when you're hosting an entire church, that requires work. That, re- that is a personal investment at that point that requires, that re- requires strategic planning and readiness. In Colossians 4.15, we read, Greet the brethren who are in Laodicea and also Nympha and the church that is in her house. See, so a very common way that the church ministered to one another. And I would hope that as we even think about this, that we you know, remember what we've all been through in the last year and change, right? I hope that if we learn one thing from COVID, regardless of how your approach was to it, whether you thought it was a pandemic or whether you thought it was like the bubonic plague, wherever you fell along that spectrum, I hope that, one of the way, that you ached for fellowship, right? That you looked forward to the time where you could have people in your home again. Home again. Some of you it didn't face. Some of you had people over any, anyway. Some of you gathered together on the Lord's Day anyway. You didn't let it phase you. Some were more cautious, and that's fine. But I hope we learn that. That what is the church without showing hospitality? What is the church without gathering together? We neglect those things at our peril. And I hope we felt that heartache of being apart and not being able to share life with one another, not be able to be together in such a fashion where we were able to examine one another's lives and say, hey, there's a need there that I can meet. Perhaps a need that I am uniquely equipped to meet, and because we are gathering together, we can show that hospitality to each other. And I hope that we never become strangers to that. I hope that, never, that showing hospitality never becomes optional to this church. When we say we're like a family here, oh yeah, Emmaus Road, we get together, we, we do life together, I never want that to be all talk. I never want that to be false. I want that to be a staple of this body here. That we are mindful of one another enough, that we know each other enough, that we love one another enough to go out of our way to exercise hospitality. Love of strangers. You think about this. Think about this. How does Peter call the church in this book? A couple of times, right? Strangers, exiles, aliens, sojourners. Right. That very theme should not prevent us from exercising hospitality, especially in light of the fact that if we are indeed exiles and sojourners, how much more should a church be welcoming to one another, to invite one another in as various parts of society rejects us? May it be far than, may we go farther than, beyond than just words. Listen to James 2.15. If a brother or sister is without clothing, note this, brother or sister, that is, brother or sister in the Lord, is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and be filled. And yet do not give them what is necessary for their body. What use is that? Another, another passage says, how can the love of God be in you if you are so dismissive and inattentive to the needs of those who claim Christ with you? It's a strong rebuke. The person that you are least likely to pay, or, or most likely to pay attention to, most likely to think about and be willing to meet their needs if you merely give them words, go in peace, be filled. What use is that? I tell you, it's useless. He brings people to your door, and you turn them away and smile and say, God bless you, be at peace, and all heaven just weeps, because Jesus came to your door and you left him out on the street, sings Keith Green. 
Don't overlook that opportunity. We see similar instructions in Romans 12, 9 through 13. Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor. Not lagging behind in diligence. Fervent in spirit. Serving the Lord. Rejoicing in hope. Persevering in tribulation. Devoted to prayer. Contributing to the needs of the saints. Practicing hospitality. I love how this is in a group. It's in a grouping. These all work together. But especially within, in the context of pra- practicing hospitality, how can you do any of these things if you are unwilling to open your home to others? So important is this, it's even a qualification for elders. 1 Timothy 3.2, An overseer then must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable, able to teach. Paul says the same thing in Titus 1.8. And then the author to Hebrews says a very curious thing, as in our scripture reading this morning, Hebrews 13, 2, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for by this some have entertained angels without knowing it. Entertaining angels unawares. That's what I'm saying. You never know who you will have opportunity to bless, whether mortal or heavenly. That is the opportunity we have with all the fellowship, all the accountability and knowledge of the other person, knowledge of the fellow saint, to love them and to build them up in our own lives, to be open to examination, right? Open to correction, not shutting people out. Think about that. Lack of hospitality leads you to keep secrets, right? (laughs) Closing off your life to one another. No one can examine your life. No one can be involved in your life. And sin can really lay out a destructive path. That is hospitality. And note here, we don't merely practice hospitality. We are to do it with a particular attitude. An attitude that I think is challenged to all of us. Be hospitable to one another without complaint. Oh, that's the hard part, right? Oh, hospitality is good. Yeah, come over. But without complaint. I mean, sometimes we don't show hospitality and don't complain. Sometimes we don't show hospitality and complain anyway. But sometimes we show hospitality and do complain. Peter says, do this without complaint. And typically this complaining involves gossip. See, you notice how when you complain about another person, let's be honest with ourselves here, we don't say, Hey, there's, there's Tim again, or there's Rick again. What's, what's he do? Why did he have to come to the fellowship meal? Why, why do you got to be here, right? We don't call him out right there. No, we go to the next person. Hey, hey, there's that guy. Why does he have to come? He talks too much. You know, he, he, he overcooks his veggies. It's like, you know, there's some kind of complaint. We find a way to complain too much. How do we know that? Because when he says complaint here, the literal meaning is a secret debate. Like we're quibbling amongst ourselves. We're complaining about the person. We're not complaining to them. Either is wrong, but we don't seem to have the courage to go up to them and (laughs) make a complaint to their face. So we complain to someone else. This harkens back to the people of Israel. This secret debate when they were strangers and sojourners. You know, one thing they did constantly was complain. Just type in your Bible search, complain or murmur. It was something that Israel really developed a knack for. And the people complained against Moses and Aaron. And the, and the people complained to the Lord. They complained. And when they did this, they were actually casting aspersions upon God's holiness. When they complained to Him, they were accusing Him of not being holy. But His presence was not with Him, even though that holy presence was obvious. And here's the point of mentioning that. Not only did that eventually get Israel kicked out of the promised land, but here's, what, here's, here's, our, here's, here's a modern day application is that we understand that God is with His people, that He is holy among His church. And that we, when we complain about people, we are complaining, we are murmuring, we are debating amongst ourselves concerning a person with whom God's presence is. 
See, in all this that was going on in our society today, all the trouble we see, especially when we pay attention to mainstream news, I'm not concerned about some kind of eschatological fanaticism. My concern for our church is that we continue to grow frustrated with each other. That amidst all this affliction that we endure and will endure, that that will lend itself to being impatient and unkind to one another, to be frustrated, and to not want to give each other the time of day. Because notice what we grumble about. Notice what we complain about. We complain about our time. We don't have time to have people over. We complain about our space. We're really particular about where we put things. We don't want to give up our space. We grumble about ourselves. Oh, I'm not a people person. I don't like being around people. We grumble around other, we, we grumble about others. Grumble, grumble, grumble. When will the church stop grumbling about something so basic to its life? Think about this in the context of our own redemption. We grumble about our time. Did, the, did not the Lord take notice of us? Did He not take notice of you? Did you not step into space and time in the person of Christ and seek and save you? That required time, friends. Does he not give time to sanctify you? For his Holy Spirit to abide with you at all times to strengthen and encourage? Think about grumbling about our space. Does not the blood of Christ give us access into the presence of God and into his eternal blessed covenant? That requires space. The church requires space. We share the space. We share the burden. We grumble about ourselves. I'm an introvert. You know what's worse than being an introvert? Being a sinner. That prevents you from being around people, and the Lord remedied that through the blood of His Son. There should be nothing else that will keep you from being able to show hospitality to people. Also, did not the blood of Christ provide the basis for making you new in Him? So in spite of maybe personal quirks, should not your love for those for whom Christ died supersede those, that you may minister to them? And of course, we grumble about others. Remember, you're grumbling about people for whom Christ died. And if you're going to grumble, at least confess the grumbling, be willing to repent from it, and ask the Lord for ways to serve that person. When I say, when I encourage you guys to exercise hospitality toward one another, or say, hey, invite someone over, I typically recommend that you invite someone over who you don't really like that much. It's an amazing way to minister to them. And like I said, you may be able to minister to them and encourage them in a most unexpected way. Way. So this godly acceptance is something that we should practice eagerly. More than a handshake, more than have a nice day, more than a how you doing. It goes above and beyond that to say, how can I serve you and minister to you and encourage you while you are in my home? See, Paul has something to say about that in Philippians 2.14. Do all things without grumbling or disputing so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent. Have people over. Be a part of their lives. Get to know them. Be merciful to them. And may it be a way that God's grace can impact their lives. Make every opportunity for it, right? And this goes both ways, right? There's inviting people over, and then there's the person being invited into that household. Don't be the person who puts it off. Don't be the person who makes excuses. Find an excuse to go and be with your fellow saint and to, in, and to reciprocate that service, to see how you can love on them and pray for them, and keep watch over their souls. This goes both ways, but I think we, you know, 2,000 years removed from this command, what an amazing opportunity we have to serve one another and to love one another in this way, to practice that hospitality, to come to the aid of others, to be an encouragement, to feed, to house them, to meet their needs. And as the Lord has blessed you, I would encourage you strongly in that same spirit and to that same degree, bless others. I mean, you who believe that 
the gospel's going to do amazing things, right? We're the church, the church triumphant, the church militant, and we're going to go out there and preach the gospel, and the world's going to get turned upside down, and we're going to see the church victorious. How are we going to do that if we can't even have people over? Ever think about that? It's so backwards. So I encourage you, rethink that. See, see, see what the Scripture says to you. In light of the myriad of excuses we can make, this is what the Word of God says, and it is good for you to do this. And it is a command. Be hospitable to one another without complaint. And I think as we put that into practice, it will be far more enjoyable and far more, we will see far more opportunities to keep loving and serving each other in the context of God's people, knowing that even though we were strangers and aliens, Christ has brought us near. How well the church does to bring one another near in Christian love and grace. Let's pray. Father, thank you again, uh, though there's much more we could say uh, regarding hospitality and though we have to shorten our, our time together this morning because of other events, we do rejoice that we can remind ourselves of, of the importance of hospitality, the importance of a love of strangers, the importance of, of how greatly we can minister to one another in this context. It's so simple. It's so ready to be taken advantage of. And I pray that we would be that kind of church who is able to and willing to do that with joyful hearts, without complaint. Not only to do it without complaint, but to do it with praise. Lord, to, this would be a catalyst for worship, to know that you are providing the means and opportunity to serve each other. But this was not happenstance. This was not a coincidence. It was by your appointment and by own, your own sovereign providential working that we can come together even outside of Lord's Day worship and to, to bond with one another and to see that how we can stimulate one another to love and good deeds. But this is a partnership, that how much stronger are we together as the body of Christ when we are able to welcome one another into our homes. Pray that you would bless us in that regard. And we know that the enemy will try to discourage that through whatever means he can, but greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. We cling to that word, Lord. We cling to that promise. And by your grace, by your strength, and by your uh, providence, we'll be able to do that. Uh, may it be a time of refreshing, Lord, a time to walk with each other, time for encouragement, accountability, sanctification, all for Christ's honor, that we would truly be able to reflect the love that you have for us, that as Christ invited us in, though we were strangers, separated from the covenant and from all your blessings that you have brought us near, may we too bring one another near to enjoy those promises together. Pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.